That footing and positioning takes place in the hearts of all of us tonight. God, we ask you for it in Jesus' name we pray. Clap your hands to him right now as an offering of thanksgiving and praise. Come on, do it with your heart right now. Turn your head to heaven and just tell God, thank you, God, for your goodness. Thank you for the privilege to be in your house tonight. Thank you for the honor to hear the word of God again tonight. God, we thank you in Jesus' name. God bless you. Thank you for putting your heart in prayer here tonight. Brother Hughes, I, again, I, I'm not going to give some long. You, you, the anointing is going to speak for itself. I want you to come. I want you to take your liberty. Do whatever you feel in the Holy Ghost. I trust you impeccably. Impeccably. You've got complete freedom in this pulpit tonight. Why don't you just clap your hands right now if you're glad Brother Hughes is here with us. Praise the Lord, everyone. It is an honor to be in the house of the Lord tonight. There's no place like God's house. There's no place you can go where you will be treated better than you're treated here. One of the things you can guarantee about coming in the presence of God is you'll never walk away with your head down, your face red, because you've been shamed, embarrassed, or humiliated. God don't beat his kids up. Nobody's had to call the authorities on him because he was being mean to his children. No one's got any marks on their body as a result of what he did to them. It's an honor to be here tonight. If you have your Bibles, let's go to the Gospel of Luke, 17th chapter. And let me begin reading in verse 1. Then said he unto the disciples, It is impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. Were better for him that a millstone were hang about his neck, and he cast in the sea, than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourself. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. If he repent, Forgive him. If he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. And the apostles said unto the Lord, Increase our faith. And an angry Lord replied back. And the Lord said, If you had faith, as a grain of a mustard seed, you might say, This sycamine tree be thou plucked up by the root and plant in the sea, and it would obey you. But which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will send him by and by, when he has come in from the field, go sit down to me? And will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I may sup, and gird thyself, and serve me until I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink? Doth he thank that servant? Because he did the things that were commanded him, I throw no. I don't think so. So likewise ye, when you have done all those things which you commanded, say. Now they're going to repeat after him. We are unprofitable servants. 
we have done that which was our duty to do. Let me read it from a different translation. So likewise shall ye, when you have done all those things, say, we are worthless servants. We have only done what was our duty. So for a few moments tonight, I want to speak to you from a question. And my question will irritate you. I want to speak from you from a question. And the question is, how will you handle offense? The question is not, will you be offended? Because Jesus prophesied everybody in this room would be offended. And when offense happens, what will your response be? Are you going to be like an American? We're going to act like America and think that we have privileges and rights, do whatever we choose? Or are we going to do it God's way? Lord bless you may be seated. Before I begin tonight, let me say what an incredible honor it is to be here. And I hope and pray I don't say anything to irritate you too terribly bad. This passage of scripture that I have read to me is, is one of the most intriguing passages in the New Testament. What's intriguing about the passage is that the men who were there to hear it couldn't write about it. They were so offended by what he said, they could never repeat it after that day. Now, for Jesus to force them, he literally made them repeat after him. Well, we have done that which is our duty to do. We're just worthless servants. See, there's, there's something greater than duty. And what God expects out of us is not to act like our world, but to act like him. So when he treats us in a certain way, he expects us to return what he does for us to other people. If a Gentile had not have heard this story and asked questions about this story and asked others about this story, it would not be recorded. It would have not been in the book. But a Gentile, hearing what Jesus had said, trying to let his friend understand that we're not following something that's weird or strange. And so he writes to his friend Theophilus a letter so that his friend can explain to others what Jesus was really all about. Now, he's not from a Jewish world. He's from a Gentile world. And his friend Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus, is actually a... A, a leader or someone in authority in the Roman Empire. 
to receive the term that he used to describe him lets us know that this guy's got a pretty high position in the government. And he's letting a fellow Gentile know that this Jesus is really more than what anybody has described him as being. And as he starts addressing the life of Jesus, he doesn't do it from a Jewish standpoint. He doesn't use Jewish tradition or even Jewish um, celebrations. You don't find them in his writings. It's purely a history of what he saw and heard and understood about who Jesus really was. Now, for him to write his story, he had to go to someone who actually heard it. He had to have an eyewitness. And his story, he didn't verify by just one, one source. He lets Theophilus know that I have verified this by multiple sources. And I, there are many people that I've talked to that have have given me this information, and this information is just not one point of view. It's I found several that can say, yes, this is what it was. But maybe one of the questions we are to ask is, where did he get his story from? Who did he ask? Who, who did he question? He, someone shared with him what happened with these disciples. And then they started talking about the fact that this event with these disciples was, was so irritating to them that none of them ever wrote about it. The first gospel written is Mark. The second one is Matthew. The third is Luke. The last is John. The Gospel of John is actually the last book written in the New Testament. It's written somewhere around 100 to 107 A.D. So here's an old man at the end of his life that has every other book written at his disposal because he's at Ephesus. They collect books. That's where the library's at. So he's got all the books written in the New Testament. And he can read from all of them, and having all those resources still doesn't address this issue. Why? Because what Jesus asked them to do, they wanted more faith. And that's our world today. Jesus starts by talking about offense. It is impossible, but that offense will come. I've worked with people for now 37 years. I've talked to a whole lot of people in one-on-one -on -one conversations, well over 30,000 people. It's probably closer to 40,000 now than 30. One of the common questions I hear from people on a regular basis is, why did God let this happen to me? If God really loved me like you say he does, then why did God allow this to happen to me? Now, to answer that question, I have to ask a question. 
The fact I'm asking a question in answer to a question is actually a sign of extreme dysfunction. Dysfunctional families don't answer questions. They ask more questions. So the fact I still have to ask the question, though, tells us about the importance. The question I have to ask you is, did you ever hurt anybody? Well, yes. Did God stop you? See, we don't want God messing with us, but we want him to control everybody else. And everything that happens, we want to blame on God. And if you don't blame it on God, you will blame it on the devil. So either God caused it or the devil caused it. And I can tell you that the most difficult thing to do today is to get humans to take ownership of their life and admit they've got a problem. Now, we Pentecostals have even taken it to a new limit. We make spirits out of everything. And the instant you make a spirit out of something, you take humans' responsibility away, and they can't help themselves or control it or do anything about it because they're helpless to a spirit world they have no, no control over. So... It's a spirit, and, and so now there's a spirit of homosexuality, there's a spirit of addiction, there's... Well, the fact is, none of them are spirits. They're choices. They're what humans choose to do. And when I choose to do things, they have consequences. I choose everything I do in life. I would, I would guess that less than 5% of whatever happens in a person's life is actually the will of God. It may be less than that. I would guess that 90 to 99% of everything that happens in our life is the will of man, not the will of God. The first book written in the New Testament is not one of the Gospels. It's actually written seven years after Pentecost. And it's written for one reason. Within seven years of Pentecost, seven years, somewhere around 40 A.D., this first letter has to be written, and it's written by the man that everybody now looks up to that gives direction to everybody else. It's not Paul. It's not Peter. It's not John. John don't start doing any kind of writing at all till somewhere around 90 AD. So it, it's not John. Who is it? It's not Jude. First letter written starts off like this. To the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, 
count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptation. Let no man say when he's tempted, I am tempted of God because God cannot be tempted of evil. Neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his. One of the casualties of Pentecost is that we think we're entitled to blame everybody for what happens. And so we're going to say God sent a test by or God caused this to happen or God caused that to happen. James has to point out God had nothing to do with it. See, in, in America, when I talk about family and marriages and relationships, I irritate us really bad because we think we wrote the Bible. We think the whole world operates like we do and because the whole world operates like we do, we're so arrogant and egotistical that, that it has to be our way. See, we say things like, we found our soulmate. And that don't exist. What you do in America is you find somebody you think you want to like then you go to the prayer room and convince God it's the right one. Then you tell everybody it's the will of God. Do you realize in two-thirds of the world today, right now, today, you don't get to choose who you marry? Well, that irritates Americans big time. Two-thirds of the world. China, Asia. Put China and India together, and, and you've got two-thirds of the world just there. It's probably more like 80 to 85% of the world today don't have the opportunity of choosing who they marry. So for you to say God has a special one picked out for you, you're saying that 85% of the world don't get to enjoy what you enjoy. You're going to fall in love with something that through time will irritate the fire out of you. Because God's law of attraction is opposites. So in every home, there is an introvert and an extrovert. And those two differences will irritate over time because one of you wants to stay home and do nothing and the other one's got to be around people and enjoying people. So the one that wants to be the last one to leave church is going to irritate the one that wants to be the first to leave because they don't want to talk to anybody at the place. When you get the choice of choosing, you don't choose for the right reason. Then we complain and we fight over our differences. My first encounter with a Pentecostal family 
in a pastor's office on the north side of Houston. Encounter number one, first client, got in a fist fight in the pastor's office. Now, I thought it must be my responsibility to stop it. So I jumped up and ran between them because they're landing blows. Blah, blah, blah. And I started, I turned my back to her to get in front of him so he wouldn't hit her, and she hit me twice. <laughs> I had bruises that lasted several weeks. That's my introduction to us at church. Jesus declared you're going to be offended. The people who offend you is never a stranger. Jesus said, if thy brother. The only people who are going to irritate you in life is people you declare you love. So it's not the world that wrecks our lives, it's us. It's what happens in families and relationships. And Jesus understood that very well. And he's letting these 12 men know that your brother is going to trespass. He's going to irritate you. And when he does, how will you respond? Several years ago when I was teaching at the Bible college, I was actually teaching the life of Christ been in the late 90s, and I thought, I'm going to have fun with about 20, uh, no, about 137 young people. I, I'm, I'm just going to kind of figure out where they're actually at. So I, I'm teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and if you've read the Sermon on the Mount, it's the most irritating thing in the Bible. To do what Jesus asked you to do, you don't like. And you will fight it and declare it's not necessary. Because Jesus said, if thy brother smite thee on the right cheek, deck him. That's not what he said, is it? But that's our interpretation. If thy brother, come here, son. I'm 71, so I can call you son, okay? Hold up your right hand. Put it on your right cheek. Now, how am I going to hit his right cheek? There's not a man alive going to do that number. That's what ladies do. Turn around. Here's what a man's going to do, especially to a brother. He's going to come up behind him when he can't see where he's at, and then he's going to thank you. Jesus said, if your brother, I can't read minds but I can read faces. 
And everything I say that irritates you shows up in a flash. Boom. You can't hide it unless you're a sociopath. We don't like what Jesus said. And we, we try to figure out how to get around it. So I asked 137, 18 to 27, 28-year-olds that, that morning, what do you think Jesus meant when he said, if thy brother smite thee on the right cheek, turn the other? And it was like that room just erupted. That one would say something, the other one, someone say something else, and they just went back and forth. And I let them go. Finally, after 20 or 30 minutes of this back and forth, the gentleman in the back of the class piped up and said real loud, well, I'm glad it don't say what to do afterwards. What Jesus asked us to do was irritating. And when the disciples demand faith, Jesus says, this is not about faith. This is duty. This has nothing to do with faith. Because faith the size of a pinhead would say to a sycamore tree, be thou plucked up by the root and plant in the sea, and it'd pay it 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 would obey you. This is about doing simply what you're asked to do. And if all you're willing to do is what you're asked to do, you've missed the whole point. If I'm going to become what God created me to be, then I'm going to have to get past duty. And I have to start living my life based upon what I receive and returning to others what I get from him. In the Sermon on the Mount, he taught us how to pray. What's his prayer? Called the Lord's Prayer. Most people can quote it. Our Father, which art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. We quote it without ever thinking about what's actually being said. In the original text, every one of those first three verbs are in the imperatives tense, which are commands. So Jesus is literally telling us when we pray, you remind God that it's his responsibility to hallow his name, not yours. There's nothing you can do to make his name hallow. That's his responsibility. Hallowed be thy name. Thy king. You bring about your kingdom. Thy will be done. It, I can't produce his will. He produces his will. What I have the ability to do is to forgive our debts. How? Forgive us our debt. Forgive us, forgive trespasses. How? As we. That's conditional. 
Forgiveness is determined by your ability to release it and give it away. And if you don't give it away, then you haven't forgiven. Now, I, let me show you how bad this irritated them. Matthew chapter 18. The disciples are arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Who's going to sit on right hand? Who's going to sit on left hand? They're jockeying for position. And Jesus brings a child and sets the child in front of them and says, if you don't first become as a child, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Then he says, it is impossible, but that offense will come. Second time he said this. But woe unto him through whom it comes. That's the second warning. God hates offense. You know what the saddest thing I discovered about families and church? Is all the statistics on family get worse at church than they do in the world. When 53% of Americans admit using violence in their family on a yearly basis and you go to church, it's 60 to 63%. When 33% of Americans admit using violence in their families on a weekly basis, you go to church, it's 40 to 43%. 68 to 80% of all sexual abuse of children happens in a religious environment where people declare that they love God and they go to church and that they're serving God and following God and reading the Bible. How is all this stuff possible? When you come to church, instead of fixing your problems, you just find a substitute for your problem and it never gets fixed. You just get busy doing something else instead of fixing the issues of our own life. Jesus said, if you offend, it'd be better than a millstone tied about your neck and drown in the sea. That's their form of capital punishment. If you were convicted of a crime in Jesus' day, instead of crucifying, that's the Roman way. The Jewish way was to take you out in the Mediterranean Sea, tie your hands and feet together, tie a rope around your neck, tie that rope to a millstone, throw it overboard and bury you in an unmarked grave where nobody could even visit you. You cease to exist. God hates offense. Malachi 2.16 says God hates putting away, but there's a colon, and we never go past the colon. For one covers violence with a garment. God hates divorce, but he hates violence in a family just as much as he hates divorce. But it's, it's around us. It's everywhere. And, and when I quote these statistics about abuse, that's not spanking. 
It's things that leave marks or injuries on somebody else. And God hates it. It is impossible, but that offense will come. Now there's a kid sitting in the midst. Jesus takes it one step further. He says, it'd be better you cut your foot off and cut your hand off and go through life halt or lame rather than having two hands and two feet be cast into hell. The only heaven or hell issue Jesus addressed was offending children. The only one. God hates it. If thy eye offend thee, pluck it out. Better go through life with one eye rather than having two be cast in the lake of fire. He used both terms for hell in the Jewish language. Don't you know that their angels, which is plural, not singular, their angels are always in the presence of my Father. I can't keep you from wounding or hurting them, but I assign angels to them to keep record of everything you do to them, and at some point in life, though that record will be used for you to answer why you did it. Now, Peter sees an opportunity, and he says, Jesus, how many times do I forgive? Seven. He threw Jesus' words right back in his face. See, we never put these details together to even see about why God addressed some of these issues the way he did. Seven, what Jesus say? Yeah, Peter, seven times. Is that what he said? No, Peter, not seven. But what? Seventy what? Times. Seven. Can you imagine what Peter was thinking? Jesus, would you please make up your mind? How in the world do we go from seven times to 490 times? Somebody with a smartphone got a calculator on it. Whip it out real quick. Multiply 24 times 60. 24 hours a day, 60 minutes and an hour. Divide that by 490. 490. That's every 2.938 minutes. Multiply that number by 24. Now divide it by 16. did it backwards. If you take eight hours out of the day to sleep, which leaves 16 hours, uh, multiply 16 times 
no, 60, and divide by 490. 16 times 60. Every one minute, how much? One point. Not even two minutes. Why? Because the moment you don't is the day you wind up in a prison you can't get out of. Forgiveness is the nature of God. Medical science has just discovered a disease that's killing more people than any other disease they know of. It kills more people than cancer, heart attacks, strokes, diabetes. It's actually the disease that produces all of those. And that disease is called unforgiveness. And they now attribute 61% of cancer to unforgiveness. 80% of strokes and heart attacks are attributed to unforgiveness. When you hold on to grudges and you don't let things go, you turn your immune system off so your body can't even heal itself and produce the antigens necessary to bring healing to your body. Why has COVID been such a horrible problem in our world? Only one answer, because America and the world's eat up with unforgiveness. And because we keep holding on to grudges and all this stuff that's happened and we won't let it go, it's now affecting us to the point that we can't find anything that shows up. Now they're training doctors and nurses in forgiveness therapy. If you come to a hospital or to their office with some disease, they're going to start asking you questions about, has anybody hurt you? What are you holding on to? Because they can do all they know how to do. But if you still are holding on to something you haven't released, then it's going to shut down their ability. and they, they can't even help you overcome the problem that you came to see them for because... You won't let things go. See, unforgiveness is not an option. It's a duty. Forgiveness is a duty, not unforgiveness. Forgiveness is a duty. Unforgiveness is simply going to start causing me problems that I'm the only one who has an answer for. Did you ever pay attention to the parable at the end of it? And why is that parable there? When Peter says and asks what he does, then Jesus goes in this parable, and apparently it's directed directly at Peter. He's the one who asked the question. And he said a certain master had two servants. One of those servants owed him 10,000 talents. The master brought him in and said, pay me what you owe me. And the man said, I don't have it. 
bind him, put him in prison, lock him up, sell his, put his kids there, sell all he's got so he can pay my debt. And that servant says to his master, please just give me an opportunity, I'll pay you back. The master says, you know what? You've been very profitable to me, so here's what I'm going to do. I will forgive your debt. It's the same word used in Acts 2.38 for remission of sin. It's afesim. I will remove the history of the debt you have. It's gone. You don't owe me a penny. You're released. That man goes out and finds a fellow man, servant, that owed him 100 denarii. Took him by the throat demanded payment and he said I can't please give me a chance you know I'll pay it he said no I want it now and had him put in prison other servants saw the exchange not one there's plural at least two of them saw what was happening went back to the master and said you know that servant you forgave much he just put a man in prison for a hundred denarii and Jesus said the master was what? He was wroth. He was enraged. And he said, bring me that servant. And when the servant showed up, he said, you wicked and unprofitable servant. He went from being profitable to unprofitable. You wicked and unprofitable servant. I forgave you much. And you forgive what? So little. What's the difference in debts? Well, a talent's at least 100 pounds. It could be 135 pounds. For sake of making it easy, let's leave it at 100 pounds. It's always in reference to silver unless you specify gold. So we're talking about 10,000 talents, which would be 10,000 times 100, which would put two zeros on it, so that's at least one million pounds of silver. There's 12 ounces in metal to a pound. So that's 12 million ounces of silver. I think silver right now is 25, 26, 27 dollars an ounce. Let's just use 10. That's 120 million dollars that debt was bigger than the entire budget of the Roman Empire for one year's payment of all of the countries of the Middle East that was bigger than what they paid their soldiers their magistrates all, all the leadership for all those countries, which was Israel, Egypt, Turkey, all that area. You know what a hundred denarii is? At the max, 85 bucks. One man received forgiveness for over 120, 240 million, probably closer, or almost 300 million, probably closer to what it was, and he had that removed. But Jesus didn't stop there, did he? And so likewise, 
shall your heavenly Father do unto you if what? You from your heart do not forgive who? Your brother. Do you know what that actually saying? If you don't forgive all the sin that was buried in his name in baptism, you drag out from under the blood and you will become responsible for it again. And so likewise shall your heavenly Father do unto you Jesus took it further than that. That third verse has a very comforting word. The day I discovered what the word was, was almost 400, it was actually 400 years exactly, from the day the Bible was translated for the first time from the Greek language into the English language. From 1611 to 2011, 400 years. My brother's preaching from that passage of Scripture on Wednesday night. I travel about 47 weekends out of every year, so I'm not in church on the weekends. I, I do make it on Wednesday nights a lot of times, not always, but I was there. And he's, he's reading from this passage of Scripture. I, I have a computer program on my laptop that the, the Bible program Every word is a bullet, and if you touch it, the original text shows up, and the translation of the word showed up. And so I'm I'm following him, and and he 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 quotes that passage. I don't know why I did it. I touched that word, and when that definition showed up, I had cold chills. I thought, no, Jesus, there's no way that's what you said. That just don't seem reasonable. So I went home, got all my Greek texts out, and I went to every one of them, and they all had the exact same word. So me and God started a conversation. It lasted for several months. God, how? And, and, and several times he reminded me, James, do you think I would contradict myself? Well, no. Then you're acting like those 12. I, I finally one day after me arguing for a while, he finally said one day, James, have I ever needed your opinion about anything? <laughs> well, no. Well, I don't need it now, and I have never needed it in the past, and I sure won't need it in the future. This is a duty. Just do it. Can you put third verse back up there? Somebody find the most comforting word in that scripture. Which one is it? The one that gives us great comfort. Have you figured it out? Starts with an R. Yeah, we, see, y'all was afraid to say it because it might make you look like you're mean or something. 
if thy brother trespass against, what do you do? You rebuke him. And the severity of your rebuke will define his repentance. So if you blister him bad enough and you make him feel like he's totally worthless, you might get him to the repentance stage. Watch how our brains interpret that. For 400 years, humans had willfully misinterpreted that scripture because we don't like what it actually says because the word that he uses is a compound word. It has a preposition and a verb. The preposition is, is apo, which means upon or own. It, my iPad's on the pulpit. But the verb is tameos, o. Tameos, a word in the Greek language has O-S or omicron sigma at the end of it is a noun. It's got an omicron, which is that looks like a W. That's the O, that's a verb. So it's, it's time a O, which is action, not time a os. I knew what the word time a os was because that's the word translated honor every place in the scripture. And time a os literally translates to uncover the value of, to discover the value of, Exceedingly valuable, of great price or great worth. So when you put the preposition with it, it means you've got to produce an action to the person that's causing the problem. And here's what Jesus said you got to do. When your brother offends you, your husband or your wife, your family offends you, you got to make them feel like they're the most valuable person alive. Now tell me that's not irritating. Because you don't want to make them feel like they're valuable. You want to make them feel like they're, they're, they're smaller than an ant. <laughs> and you're going to tell them how big of a scumbag they are or dirtbag or whatever you want to make them feel like. You're going to use your words to tell them how Bad they actually are. And when I finally got the response out of God about, do I need your opinion about anything? He said, son, when you go to an altar and repent, and you get up from that altar having repented, how do you feel? Do I ever embarrass you or shame you or humiliate you? Do I stand you up in front of the crowd and tell the whole crowd what you have done, how bad you've been? How do I treat you at my altar? All I'm wanting you to do is treat my other kids the way I treat you when you show up having offended me. Fence is going to happen, but our world's taught us a wrong way of handling it, and we think we're entitled to just blistering people and saying things to people and, and, and hurting people. And we have no right to do that. But our world says it's okay. And our world applauds it. See, Solomon said, death and life are in the power of the tongue. 
There is nothing more deadly in life than a human tongue. I remember as a kid hearing things like sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You lying devil, you can beat me with a stick and I can recover. You can say words men scar me for life. Now, I've, I've heard what kids tell me parents have said. I hate you. I wish you weren't born. You're stupid. You're dumb. You can't do anything right. You're a mistake. You're going to wind up in prison. You're not lovable. Words destroy. Jesus said, I'm going to give you a tool that will allow you to change somebody else's life. When they offend, then here's what I want you to do. I want you to make them feel like they're the most valuable thing that's alive. If you don't, let me pause here a moment. The night I, 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 I touched that word was the end of May, about this time uh, 11 years ago. Three weeks from then, I was scheduled to preach at a singles conference. And I thought, whoa, God just gave me a revelation. I know where this got to be taught. There's going to be at least 1,200 singles at this meeting. Okay, 1,200. Man, this has got to be where this is taught because they wouldn't be at a singles meeting if they hadn't have been offended. Well, I got a captive audience here. When I started speaking to them, it was like I set a bomb off in that place. They just stared at me. If if looks could have killed, they'd have drugged my carcass out and had a funeral a few days later. <laughs> there wasn't one smile in the place. There was not one amen in the place. When I got through, I walked off the platform over to the right. There was a long hall behind the platform. Door went outside that you had to go in the office complex, so I was stepping out of that door, and I hear my name called. Turn around, look, and down this hallway, probably a 150-foot-long hallway, comes this young person running. And, and, and he, he gets where I'm standing, and he stops. He said, Brother Hughes, the Lord sent me to pray for you, but on the way, he said, don't. You're just an old man on a soapbox, and nothing you have to say is spiritual. Now, I just preached about a fence, and I can't even get out of the building without being offended. My brain was wanting to say, kid, look at me. Would I pass for 30? Would I pass for 40? Would, would I pass? I'm 60 years old at that. Would I pass for 50? The Bible says, rebuke not who? An elder. Now, there's not an asterisk that says you can do it if they get out of line. It 
It's amazing what's in the book, folks, that you don't like, that irritates you, and you just ignore it and think that you don't have to live up to that part of the Scripture. Well, I put that sermon aside. About nine months later, actually almost a year later, I was in another state, and it wasn't a singles conference, so it was church service kind of like this. I thought, you know what? The Lord just kept pushing. I kept arguing and said, no, God, no. I already got in trouble the first time. But finally, I did it. And, and when I got through, I mean, I started an invitation, and a guy jumps up back here and comes straight up to the front. And I'm thinking, oh, no, it's going to happen again. And he got to the platform. He, he, he motioned his finger for me to come over. He said, Brother Hughes, yes, sir. you mispronounced one of those words. I did? Yes. You call it a sycamore tree. So, well, that's what the scripture called it. No, sir, it's not a sycamore tree. Sure it is. No, go read it. See, your brains, when you're reading, look at the beginning and ending of words. You, you change everything up in the middle, and your brain will figure it out, and you won't even pay attention to it. You won't even see that it's not misspelled unless you focus on every word. That's just the way your brain works. So, there is an eye. What's a sycamine tree? Well, you need to go read it. Now, this man had been highly offended in his life. He said, when I came back to church after spending eight years of my life homeless, living under bridges, begging for food, an alcoholic, when I finally got my life straightened out, and I got back to church. The Lord took me that passage of scripture, and he wouldn't let me get past it till I figured out what it said. He said, you need to find out what a sycamine tree is. So I went home, called my wife, said, honey, go to the, my library, go to the bookshelf by my chair, third row, pull out the S. I need you to look up a word. So she goes, pulls out the S, flips it over, I said, read me what a sycamine tree is. She said, how in the world do you spell that? I said, we think it's sycamore. <laughs> it's just like it except change the O to I. So she starts reading. A sycamine tree is indigenous to the Middle East. It's actually called a black mulberry tree. The sycamine tree blooms every spring. And the way that the flower is pollinated is there is an invasion of asp. And an asp will light on that flower and sting it. Because of the sting, the fruit is very bitter. If you plant the tree, and you cut it down, it grows back. If you dig the root ball up, it'll grow back. Its roots don't grow out. 
they grow down. And they will grow as deep as necessary to find the water table. They can go four, five, six hundred feet deep, and they're going to keep growing until they find a source of water. A drought won't kill them. The only way you can kill them is to put salt water on them. You'd say that sycamore tree be all plucked up by the root and planted in the sea, and it'll die. The only way it'll die. If you don't pull every root out of the ground, it keeps coming back. It doesn't need a seed to reproduce. All you got to do is cut the limb off, stick it in the ground and water it, and it'll sprout roots and keep continuing. If you don't get rid of the junk in your life, it'll start bleeding over into everybody else's life. And you're going to start producing crops way out here that are a product of kids and grandkids. Anybody, anybody remember the Hatfields and McCoys? That, that's not a myth. That actually happened. What happened over a pig? So you, you can let the most trivial of things cause issues in homes that separate and divide for years. And it starts winding up in kids and, and grandkids. The Bible says the sins of the father are visited upon the third and fourth generation. You don't get the junk out, you'll pass it to your children. They'll pass it to their children. They'll pass their children until someone stands up and says, no, this stops here. We're not going to let this junk go past one more generation. We're going to get the junk out. The tree trunk of that tree is used to make caskets out of. So Jesus said, just hold on to it. And you let a fence show up and you just hold on to it, they'll bury you. They'll make a casket out of whatever the offense was that caused you an issue. It is impossible, but that offense will come. It's not the world's going to offend you. It's not neighbors that will offend you. The only person who has the power to offend you is someone who declares they love you. You don't need a devil to go to hell. You need a family to go to hell. We're going to cause all, anybody winds up in hell, I can guarantee you'll be over a family issue. Because we held on to things, we wouldn't let things go, and Jesus is trying to explain to these 12 men that's going to set the stage for the church, you can't let offense harbor. If you hold on to it, it'll shut your immune system down, it's going to destroy everything about you, and you are the only one who has the key to get out. Let me say one last thing, and I'll finish. Forgiveness is not simply saying, okay, Jesus, I put it in your hands. That's actually getting even. It's called passive-aggressive behavior. You've read the book, and you know the book says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Now, part of what I skipped over in chapter 18 of Matthew, Jesus said, whatever you bind on earth 
will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. You're not binding no spirit. That whole chapter is about forgiveness. Jesus will never allow you to step into the arena of revenge. That belongs to him. He will allow you to step into the arena of forgiveness and he will bring his blood and give you the ability to remove somebody else's record. True forgiveness can't happen till you give up all hope of revenge and that includes God. So for you to truly forgive, you got to do exactly what Jesus did on the cross and your prayer has to be just like his. Father, forgive them or they know not what they do. Oh, but they didn't ask. It doesn't matter. Father, forgive them. Jesus, take your blood. Go to mothers, dads, uncles, aunts, brothers, sisters, husbands, wife, Lamb's book of life. Erase this sin. Never judge them for what they did. Now you have give up all hope of revenge because God's going to remove the record and they won't be judged for what they did. And I know what your brain screams. It's not fair. You don't know what they did to me. But my response is it don't matter because you're never going to change that or fix it. It's history. There's no rewind button. You're not going to back it up, play it again. You're not going to fix it. You're not going to get a different outcome. It's over. We got to quit living our life looking at where we came from and we got to turn around and face our future if we ever want to have a life. And that means letting yesterday go. Now, now people in my profession say you got to embrace the child. Paul said you got to kick him out. Don't hug him. He'll wreck your life. You don't become as a kid. You act like an adult. But you don't know what they did. Don't matter. One answer. You're going to say, Jesus, take your blood. And you're going to call them by name. And you'll say, go to their land's book of life. Erase this sin. Never judge them. And then and only then are you free. I have a set of records at my home. There are 500 plus pages printed front and back. They're a CPS record of a boy and a girl. And they record what mother did to two children. I don't understand how people can be that evil. My parents weren't evil. My parents were incredibly good people. I don't understand none of that stuff. I, I don't understand how moms can, can wake their kids up in the middle of the night and beat them until as an adult they've had to have three back surgeries to fix the, the damage done to vertebrae and, and a kidney that, that has never grown because it was so injured by beating as a kid that it stayed atrophied all the life. I don't understand that. I don't understand how mom can sell her children to men for money. That's evil. I don't, I don't understand how she can abandon them, go to another country, and leave them alone for a year and a half. And they live on the streets. They eat out of McDonald's trash cans. I don't understand that. But I've dealt with it. And I said to her, if you want to be free and you want your life back, 
then you're going to have to let mom go, and you're going to have to say, Jesus, take your blood, go to mom's leper, book of life, erase every sin she committed against me, and never judge her for what she did. Oh, well, I can't do that. I said, then I can't help you. I must let her get a phone call. Okay, I'm ready. You know what's going to be required? Yes, I'm ready. Meet me at church. At an altar. So, okay, I'm going to pray you repeat my words. Jesus, you know everything Mother did to me. Would you take your blood? Would you go to Mother's Lamb's Book of Life? And would you erase every sin she committed? She couldn't say it. She choked. She was in, in incredible agony for over 45 minutes. She could not get it out. Finally, she screamed the name of Jesus. And when she got his name out, it flowed out of her like a volcano had erupted. And she started saying things and saying, God, forgive this and this. So I, she said things I'd never even heard. I, I, I really backed away so I didn't even have to listen to what she was asking God to cover that mom had did to her. But by the time she got to the end, you could watch her face start changing. And when she got the last one out, there was a smile showed up. There was, there was a change, visible change in her appearance. And she jumped to her feet and she started screaming, I'm free, 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 I'm free. The question is, do you want to live bound or do you want to be free? Would you bow your heads? Gracious Father, thank you today for loving us so unconditionally. Thank you for creating this place called the church that is the safest place I can ever come to. I will never be abused here. I will never be taken advantage of in your presence. You'll, I'll never walk away because you shamed me, embarrassed me, or humiliated me. I'll never walk away feeling hurt, wounded, or injured because you didn't listen and you didn't care and you didn't love. Thank you for this safe place. Lord, you see hearts that I can't see. You know what's in hearts I don't know. You're well aware of the need of every heart that's here tonight. Jesus, would you let your gentle presence invade this place right now? And would you let us become so comfortable that we wouldn't be afraid, we wouldn't be looking for a way to get out, we wouldn't be terrified that if we do something or release something that then I'll be tormented the rest of my life. But in your gentle presence, we could say, Jesus, would you take me by the hand? Would you walk with me through the corridors of my mind? Would you take me to those places where I buried things that are wrecking my life and causing me all kinds of problems? Would you hold my hand as I open that door? Would you bring your blood so I can apply it to somebody's Lamb's Book of Life so that they will not be judged for what they did to me? Would you touch every heart and life that's here right now? In Jesus' name. Right where you're sitting, if you'll respond, 
You'll get your life back. All you got to do is not be afraid to give him an invitation to take you where he knows the problems are. You may have forgotten them. You may have buried them. But he knows where they're located. And if you'll allow him right now, you'll be able to change your life and your life will become totally different than it's ever been before as a result. You can hold on to it and become bitter and seeds of bitterness will wind up in generations to come because you felt like you were justified holding on. But if you want a better life and a whole life and a free life, there's only one answer. The only key out of that prison is forgiveness. And if you'll forgive, if I can act like him, then he will give back to me everything life stole. And I can have all my life back as a result of simply following his example. So he's here tonight. Would you let him talk to you? There's an incredible presence of the Lord that's here right now. His gentleness is here. He's, it's safe to leave things with him. There's no one who can protect you better from those things than he is. You can leave anything with him you desire. The woman at the well left her water pot, which represented her past. She was so comfortable, she could leave her past with him, and her life was changed forever as a result of leaving her past there. That's all he's asking for any of us today, is simply to allow him to become the father of our life he desires to be and bring the healing he desires for our lives if we'll just open our hearts and let him in. He's here. Would you worship him for a few moments? We bless you today, Jesus.